0: I'm Susanna Constantine, and this is My Wardrobe Malfunction, the podcast that's all about clothes and nothing about clothes, if that makes any kind of sense. This is the fourth episode of season six. If you haven't found us before, scroll back through our previous guests and you'll hear Tan France on his wedding day sacrifice, Stacey Dooley on shivering her skirt off, and Dan Snow on his Indiana Jones hat, of course. But let's get on to today's guest. He's a modern furniture restorer, upcycler, eco-designer, and presenter on the hit show, The Repair Shop, and Money for Nothing, and now Jay and Dom's home fix. It's Jay Blades. Oh, of all my amazing guests so far, I think Jay is the most particular about his clothes, and he has an extraordinary life story too. In fact, we talked for so long that we've split this episode into two parts. So let's grab the handles, open my wardrobe doors and find out what's inside. So my guest today is someone who, if you haven't seen and fallen in love with already, you've been living under a bloody rock. It is the wonderful Jay Blades, modern furniture restorer, upcycler, Eco designer and presenter on the hit show, The Repair Shop, and also Money for Nothing. And now, Jay and Dom's Home Fix. Is there anything you're not doing, Jay, when it comes to home improvement? Well,
1: thank you for having me, first of all. Um, With regards to home improvements, I think I've almost got it covered. There's probably about three more shows that I'm doing this year that um, will make me have the whole holistic approach to sorting your house out.
0: I had a look at your um, website, uh, J&Co, and kind of I'm actually in my bathroom at the moment because I've got all my bloody kids here and they're, you know, on doing (laughs) homeschooling. So it's the only sanctuary I've got left. But I love, uh, I love antique furniture predominantly. But I just, what you're doing to really kind of mainstream bits of furniture is quite extraordinary. And I love the way you paint a little red tip on one of the legs of the chairs and the fabrics you're using. Who does all that? Is that you? Or is it the, the kids you're mentoring?
1: Well, basically, I'm not mentoring as many kids in my workshop as I would like to. Okay. Um, a lot of the kids I mentor at the moment is done via Zoom or phone calls. Um, the designs I come up with, I do some of them when I'm in the area in my workshop but I've got a team of upholsterers that just knock out the work for me basically because um, sometimes when I'm filming I'm filming probably about five or sometimes six days a week Um, the repair shop is quite intense and then I have like uh, money for nothing on top of that so I might do three days on money for nothing and then another three stroke six days because it's one more with the three to the four because it's a traveling day as well as what I need um so it's quite quite intense I don't get that much time to be in the workshop but when I'm in the workshop I do a lot of stuff in there I dance yeah I drink a cup of tea I have a biscuit and then I just get creative um it's unbelievable I love it at the moment
0: is that your favorite place to be in your workshop more than in a, a the studio or anywhere else is that your sanctuary
1: my sanctuary is my workshop. My workshop is one of my most creative places to be in the world. I've been loads of places, but when I'm at the workshop, the first thing I always do, I put on a kettle, have a cup of tea, two boiled eggs, and then I just put on the music and I start dancing. And when I dance, um, I lose probably sometimes I lose about an hour, and then I get into it. And when I get into it um you i feel the fur come up on the back of my neck and i'm like that's the one and then sometimes i i I create a design i do something and it doesn't look good and no one gets to see it um but i learn from that design and most of the designs that i do you mentioned about the the paint on the bottom of a of a leg or a button um all of those came from mistakes so i love making mistakes
0: Okay, well, we certainly learn from them, don't we? But do you have, I mean, out of, I've now, I think you're something like the 44th guest I've had on my wardrobe malfunction. And I've had wow. everyone from Nile Rogers to Trini and to Dames Rose. But having kind of looked you up and read more about <laughs> you, I don't think anyone is obs- obsessed with clothes as you are.
1: I am, um, I've been obsessed with clothes since I was about 11 years old. Um, And it all started from... I I got this second-hand cashmere jumper from one of my uncles. And I loved it. I mean, absolutely loved this jumper. It felt beautiful. um, And it just looked beautiful when you had it on. And my mum decided to wash it. And when she washed it, it came out the size of an action man. And (laughs) I I vowed at 11, I said to my mum, please do not wash any more of my clothes. I'm going to take care of it. And she looked at me like, really? And then... Ever since 11, I've been washing, pressing um, and folding my clothes um, and really looking after them. Like you like, as, as almost as if that is the last piece of clothing I'm going to have. And I still have that same kind of um, attitude towards clothing now.
0: That's so interesting because um, Niall Rogers is the same. He hand washes every item of clothes, even his suits. And he does it himself. Nothing goes to the dry cleaners. He comes off stage and he puts a suit in the bath with some kind of, I don't know, Lux or fairy snowflake, yeah, soap flakes, washes yeah. everything by hand.
1: Wow. I don't. I, I, so it's a thing, Jake. I know. I, I don't wash my suits by hand. Um, that's really impressive, I must admit. He's got it worse than me. I, I couldn't do that. Um, <laughs> but I, I do love pressing. I would spend, I think I spend about four hours ironing.
0: Really? How often?
1: I could probably do it uh, once a week. Um, I I, I spend the time ironing because I I normally wear a white shirt on the repair shop Mm -hmm. and um, all of those need ironing. So I just Mm. make sure that they look as crisp. I'm I'm very particular. I did do sending my shirts once to an ironing service and they didn't do it to my standards. So I just said, okay, I'll do it myself. Um, It just didn't work out. So... Yeah, my standard of ironing is very, yeah, very particular. Very say. exact.
0: But do you, have, do you have one of those? You know, I don't know if I've still got one because we've got a very old ironing board here and it has one of those little sleeve, those miniature sleeve ironing boards that pull out from underneath and you put the sleeve of a shirt in so you don't get a crease. Do you have one of those? Uh, no,
1: I've, I know. I like the crease. So um, the crease has um... to marry up to the shoulder um and then you 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 iron the, the the shoulder bit um first of all i'll take you through the ritual first of all i do the collars yeah no, no, no please I do, do i do yeah. i do the collars first and i iron the back of the collar all flat then i fold it and I iron inside just in case the iron has a bit of dirt or something on it um and then i go to the the cuff because i wear a double cuff um shirt so i go to the inside of the cuff fold it over and then still press the inside so it's nice and crisp. Then I would press the sleeve um, and then once I'm pressing the sleeve, I do it without the button being attached and then I button it up, the button on the sleeve, and then I turn it over and press the other side. I repeat the process on the other one. Then I do the top of the shirt, which is that bit there, just by the collar, and then I put... Which is the hardest
0: part. It is quite
1: hard, but there is a knack to doing it. And then I do... um, the body of the shirt and make sure I get the seam, the crease right where the, the back meets the front. And then I turn it over and put it on the back. And then I put everything onto hangers or I fold them up. And I put the if I fold them up, I put the plastic that you get when you buy a shirt. So the cardboard inside um, underneath the collar, and then you've got the plastic inside, and then you've got the bit which holds the button. So when you put them in a suitcase, they don't get crushed
0: oh my god you're a freak uh, just a wee bit just the wee you bit. Are and... a wee bit okay so i am i'm really okay because I, I i hear you i i kind of hear you so it's that annoying thing when you fold them up and then they they crease again because folding i think folding almost takes more time than the ironing so that's really interesting that if you have the bit of Flat plastic or cardboard that comes in a shirt, and then you can fold it back over that. Is that what you do?
1: Yeah, well, I've no, I've, I've been folding since I was 11 years old, so I know how to fold without the plastic. The plastic is inside the collar, so that's the okay. bit that keeps the collar upright because I like my collars to be um covering my neck and just it just needs to sit, everything needs to sit correct. Um, But lately what I've done is, because when I fold them up, you take them out you put them on, there's that crease going right down the front. So now I go with my hangers. And then I'm very particular about the type of hangers that I use as well.
0: Okay, tell me about the hangers. Are they padded?
1: Yeah, the hangers have to be... um, I've got different colours for different things. So my cardigans and jumpers will be on like a beige kind of hanger. It's a suit hanger. So the sho- shoulders are quite broad. So you don't get that dimple in the shoulder. Yeah. And then my trousers and my shirts are on a mahogany um, hanger. And the trouser one has a bar across it. Um, so it holds the trousers correctly on there and doesn't um, crease them. And then all my shoes are polished and put... But every time I wear a pair of shoes... Um, I clean them before I put them back away so as soon as I'm ready to wear it I can just grab it it's good to go and that's it.
0: Okay so how do you organize your wardrobe? Is it all color coordinated?
1: Yeah my wardrobe is color coordinated from um, light to dark and then trousers Um, I have quite a lot of dark trousers and then I've got some light ones at the back I've got like light grey, um, I've got some light blue and I think I've got one brown pair um, and then I have my suits and my coats which are on another hanger, so you have the coats at the back and then you have the suits coming forward and then you have jackets and then I'll have my cardigans and my like um, sportswear jackets, you know, just kind of like um, mucking about jackets. But everything has to be, oh and tell a lie all of my jumpers And T-shirts are folded and colour coordinated. And then all of my thermals, so that's the stuff. When you're working at the repair shop, it's freezing. So I've got a load of base layers that I iron, and they're all folded up and um, ready to rock and roll. Do you iron your
0: underpants and your socks?
1: No, not the socks and underpants. I don't go that far. I just iron my my long johns and my tops. That's what I iron.
0: And what kind of underpants? Are you a boxer short man, a cotton short boxer? Because I just bought my husband Um, these. I'm just going to get them. Hang on. Okay, these are literally... If I'd met him and the first time we'd had sex and he'd been wearing this, I would have walked away. (laughs) Now those, those are good. But they're comfy. Normally, he wears kind of, you know, baggy cotton boxer shorts. These are so hideous, but he finds them really comfortable. And as we get older, it's all about comfort. But I I think I might start wearing these because there's no VPL.
1: Those are exactly what I wear. Not that brand. I buy my underwear from Marks and Spencers. um, And basically, they have the same, I think it's called a midi boxer. Um, or it's called a trunk. I think it's
0: called a trunk. A box of trunk. Yeah, I think it is a trunk. Yeah.
1: Unbelievably comfortable. I mean, it is just, wow. I th- yeah, I, I can't <laughs> sing enough about them. They are really, really comfortable. I used to wear boxer shorts, but they were very, um, they were very free, is the easiest way to put it. Um,
0: yeah, I hear you.
1: Those mini trunks are, yeah, it's cool. It's like you're getting a hug every all day. You're getting a hug all day and you feel comfortable. All
0: oh, the But that is, getting a hug all day is how um, I feel when I'm watching The Repair Shop. It's so, I was trying to kind of think of of one word to sum it up. And to me, the one word that sums that show up is tender.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think The Repair Shop... Definitely is tender. Um, It's also, there's a number of words that spring to my mind. It's community, family, love, um, craftsmanship, and caring. It's just, the the people in front of the camera, you you grow to love them, but it's the people also behind the camera that you don't get to see that I think are the Young Sun heroes because Mm. they put in such a graph to make sure that the show looks as beautiful as it does and all of the items are um are just the stories attached to them are just out of this world and i i I can't big up the the crew behind it Mm. yeah i'll do that all day every day we're good on the shots, but it's because we're a massive family yeah it's
0: a beautiful shot a beauty it's beautifully beautifully shot and Every piece is is even when it's before it's repaired, it's like a jewel. you know it's it's like a jewel. it's like you're you know you're on a dig somewhere and you're excavating something. and the excitement as well to see how it's going to turn out is it's yeah. it's thrilling, too. I find it really exciting, and you're willing. it's like you fall in love with this object <laughs> as well as the people, obviously in the story, but the actual. The love you feel for the object as well is extraordinary.
1: It is unbelievable. And I think we are very fortunate, all of us at the repair shop feel so blessed that sometimes someone brings an item in and the the story attached to it is quite raw. Someone might have passed away like three months ago. And it's almost as if we feel honoured that they're sharing this story, their family with us. And The items are not really items. They are like family members because Mm. this item that they're bringing in, it's like if it belonged to someone who's passed away, then what happens is they feel really bad and guilty that they've allowed it to get to that state. But once it's repaired, it's almost as if they've got that family member back with them and they feel so proud, so honoured, and then the legacy can just live on again. And that is, I've been in some arrivals and reveals that are just... Wow, just absolutely beautiful. And I love that the staff or the crew at the repair shop work with me because I'm dyslexic, can't read that well. Um, and basically, they never tell me, They you can get a one-pager and they'll tell you who's coming in, what the item is and what, they, what it's all about, and I never read it. All they do is say to me, the person's name is Joanna, and here she is, Jake. And then when she comes in, we do it all in a one-take and I, I'm just nosy. I just ask the questions um, that mm. what's the item about. And then the whole point is to make the person feel at ease because if you've got six ca- six cameras pointing at you and then you have the possibility of remembering that there are potentially six million people watching you, it can be quite nerve-wracking. Um, mm. So my job is just to make them take it nice and easy. Mm. Just relax.
0: It's, I think it's it's extraordinary how, you know, when I kind of think back to the shows Trini and I did, how I was always amazed how, actually the reverse almost, how safe people felt in that environment and how willing and um, keen they were to tell their stories. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the things that would come out. And it's the same with the repair shop. It's like, you know, for you it's, it's objects and furniture and um, musical instruments are a conduit to yeah. people being tr- so truthful and honest about themselves, about their lives, about the people they love. It's a, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's totally incredible. I think, as I said, I think all of us feel so honoured to be part of a beautiful show like that and then also mm. to be working with just the general public these these guys and girls that come in it's just like some of the stories attached to an item you 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 cannot even imagine this and there's some things that have come in that you just like wow really that's a super history to have in your family I wish I was part of your family because I'll be talking about that every day um and it's it's so so nice and then we're we're a great team. We've all become like family members now because we've been working with each other since 2017. Um, and we have breakfast together. We stay in the same hotel. Then we have lunch together. Then we go back to the hotel and we have dinner together. Um, and it's the same thing. You're doing that five to six days a week. I guarantee you, you're going to fall in love with the people. It's just like... Yeah. yeah it, it's no, the way it is.
0: Absolutely. I, t- I mean, I, I totally agree with you. It's It's the crew... And the researchers, producers, who, for me, were always, always like family. And I still have so many friends from making shows all over the world, in Israel and Scandinavia, who are still really dear friends. And, yeah, uh, yeah, so lucky, so lucky. But let's go back to the beginning, because your life has had more twists and turns than a bloody corkscrew. (laughs) It has,
1: actually. But the beginning... um... I was born and bred in Hackney and um, grew up with my mum and my brother um, on a council estate in Stoke Newton stroke Clapton. It was on Kaysenough Road. It was right between the two. Um, And I had a brilliant childhood. I think my childhood for me was idyllic. I just, um, I wrote a book which is coming out in May. And when you're reminiscing to write your kind of autobiography, it's like, you go over the stuff of how it made you feel. Um, And I had this, uh, I had the opportunity, I was interviewed the other day by this journalist up in Scotland. um, And she asked me about something, about a memory I had. And it just triggered something that was so sweet. And I remember going Blackberry picking, but there was this story that I told her about there was a friend of ours, well, a friend of mine lived in Stanford Hill. And Stanford Hill has got quite, it's quite a big Jewish community. And it mm-hmm. was very, not them and us, but we didn't mingle, plain and simple. And there was a Jewish um, family that had this plum tree in their garden. And uh, my friend lived next door to them and never really got on with them the ball used to go over in the garden and they never used to throw it back and all that stuff. <laughs> and then um, one summer, I don't know what possessed us. We were brave enough to knock on this person's door and say, Oh, could we pick some of your plums? Cause we see they're just dropping off and you're not, you're not having them. And the gentleman looked at us and there was about four kids, four little ruffians from, um, <laughs> from Hackney. And he looked at us and he just nodded like, yes, you can go on. And then um, we went, we climbed on the wall and picked the plums and, I remember just swinging my feet, sitting on the wall, just looking at my friends. And we all just had plums in our hands, plum juice down our tops. And all around our mouth was just plums. And it was just, it was one of the sweetest memories um, I have of my childhood. But it it, it was just something that was just like, it was based around food. But it was based around, for me, it was based around community. I was sitting there with a community of Mm. friends. The Jewish community allowed us to go into Uh, his garden, albeit sitting on the wall um, and eat these plums. And I remember looking into his garden because you could see he had like French windows. And he looked at us um, as we were sitting on the wall, just shaking our legs. And he gave this smile that most parents do when the child has done something that you're just proud of, but you know, no words could explain how you feel. And he, he gave us that look. And I never forget that it was just sublime, absolutely sublime. So my childhood has been, yeah, really cool. But then you've got to go to secondary wow. school, and then secondary school was a little bit.
0: You say that though, Jay. Sorry to interrupt you. No problem. Yeah, you say that. You you had a pretty shit time too when you. that maybe that was kind of post eleven years old because you've you, yes, you, that was you post suffered years bullying, old. abuse, racism. Well, basically, I went
1: to a school. My mum decided to send me to a school that was um, outside of. Well, it was in our catchment area, but it was outside. Not many people used to go to that school. A lot of my friends went to either Clisso Park, um, Hummerton House or Hackney Downs. I went to Highbury Grove. And Highbury Grove, um, for me, was my first experience of racism. I grew up in Hackney. Um, We had black, white, Chinese, Asian. We had the whole shabam. I never experienced any form of racism. until I went to secondary school and they started calling me some names. And I thought those were names of endearment. I thought they were being nice to me. So when I went back to um, my community and I started using these names, a lot of the older generation said to me, hold on, Jay, that those names are not right. You should, those are racist names. Where'd you get those names from? Like, we've never heard those names in the 11 years that we've been together. I said, oh, that's what they call me at school. they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool. So, um, an older member of my community came to my school and, um, said to me, point yeah. to me, who's calling you those names? And I said, those guys, um, and he decided to beat them up, um, he didn't go to my school so when i went to school the next day i had not only those five people he had beaten up i had probably about 50 people that were constantly on my case to beat me up um and not only were they beating me up they were beating up my friend um raja um who was an asian guy from hackney and basically they would yeah they would beat him up as well and it wasn't nice and i spent the rest of my I think it was four or five years at school just fighting, um, fighting racist people. Um, because I got a bit of a reputation of um, he's the guy to pick on. Um, and anybody that was saying anything racist within the school, um, I will have a fight with them, um, trying to defend people. And the punishment I received from my housemaster, my assistant head teacher, and also the head teacher was wow. I I went to school when they was still allowed to cane you, but you had to go for a series. So the housemaster I'll get sent to, he would normally punish you with a slipper. Um, and it was those old soles that used to have the elastic over the top. He cut the fabric off. So he just had the rubber sole and he would beat you with that. Um, and if you didn't cry or show enough remorse, he would send you to the assistant head, Mr. Morgan. I'll never forget that guy. Um, and Mr. Morgan was ruthless. Mr. Morgan would hurt you. Plain and simple, he would hurt you. With what he did with that cane, it hurt. Um, but if you still showed no remorse, you get sent to the head teacher. Um, the, yeah, the head. Um, and yeah, you'll get beat. And then on the back of that, growing up as a teenager, growing up in Hackney, was a time of the SPG vans um, and the SUS law, where basically um, the police only had to suspect that you were doing or going to do a crime and they will stop and search you sometimes throw you in the back of a spg van beat you up um and then throw you out in um in an area that was predominantly white so if you're a black person going into an area that's predominantly white you have to navigate your way through people not liking you so yeah it was um twist and turns i must say i must say
0: when you think back to that what's the kind of uh, most prominent emotion is it rage is it resentment is it forgiveness is it what what do you feel when you think back to that
1: I I've had quite a lot of stuff happen to me and I I, I am really fortunate to be in a position that I'm in now and I think the position that I'm in now has been because of what I've received in the past So growing up poor, growing up um, Mm. and dealing with a load of racism, um, growing up and dealing with a lot of rejection because of the colour of my skin um, has made me realise that, you know what, people really and truly all want to belong to a community. That's basically what it is. And how can I, when I found my calling, I've done some volunteering work in Oxford, when I found that calling of um, giving back, that's what made all of the sense to me it, it it made perfect sense to give back to people who are less fortunate than yourself and start to teach people about the differences we have in society that was basically my calling and I would not have been any good had I not suffered the amount of racism that I received um growing up um and the amount of rejection so I I, I don't have forgiveness I don't have um resentment or any anger towards what's happened to me. It's just one of those things is the way I see it. It's like, it's allowed me to be a really rounded person now that rather than have, and I'm not saying people who have a chip on their shoulder shouldn't, but rather than have a chip on my shoulder, it's like, I need to move forward. And as I need to move forward, I can't move forward with the baggage that you gave me. I never gave myself that baggage. I remember that child that was sitting on the wall eating those plums with the juice going down the front of the T-shirt. It's like, that's me. That's the baggage I have. And I have some beautiful memories growing up. So if someone gives me their baggage, which is racism, um, I have a choice to either accept it and take that with me or just say, no, I'm going to leave that with you. And that's what I've done, basically. Um, I always deal with, I've done a lot of work in children's homes, prisons and so on and so forth, working with um, some of the most disruptive, hard to reach and um, uncontrollable people in our society. And I always did it this way for two reasons. One, because I'm dyslexic and two, because I think I didn't want to read people's um, paperwork. So normally when you work kind of in the social services sector or social services, you get a file about that thick of this young person, this case. And I would never read it because it was written by different personality or different professionals and so on and so forth. I would always take someone on face value. So how they deal with me right there and then is how I'm going to deal with them. And basically that allowed me to then get to know that person on a basis of I'm going to get to know you. And that has always worked for me. And by doing that, it's stemmed from the racism I received. If I went and worked with someone, if I worked with, which I have done, I've worked and trained the police, I've been beaten up by the police. So if I brought that baggage of all police are bad, all police are going to beat you up, all police are racist, full stop, I wouldn't be able to work with them. I wouldn't be able to get them to police the community better than how they policed me. I need to go there with a clean slate and say, all right, I'm going to work with you guys. I'm going to show you how to do it. And if you make some changes, brilliant. If you don't, okay, it's a lesson learned. But in the case of the police that I work with, they made some changes and they done some things that um, restored my faith in what I'm doing. So it's kind of, everything I've had has been a really good experience, even the bad experiences.
0: And do you think now that, do you think fame protects you to a certain degree from racism?
1: (laughs) Never. It doesn't. Um, It it gives you more. (laughs) It gives you more. I have had some trolls and I, and I must I must admit that I would say that I can explain it that the opportunity of being a celebrity um, gives you more exposure to people that don't necessarily think you deserve to be in that position so mm. some people will believe like well why have we got Jay on the repair shop he does nothing he's a black geezer you just got him as the token gesture etc etc now for me it's you're going to get loads of comments like that. You're going to get loads of negativity. I think when you look at the grand scheme of things, and I say this to the people in the repair shop, the experts, because they often come to me and say, oh, some people said this comment about you on social media and this one said that. And I said, look, we've got about anything between six to seven million people watching the show. If you have, and this isn't the case, if you have a million people on social media, Then you have, let's say, 10 of those million people that don't like me. In the grand scheme of things, that's like a mosquito in the world. Like, that's (sighs) nothing, really. They're watching the show, which is great. And also, they're allowed to express their opinion. Some people are not going to like you. And it's because of how they've been brought up, the attitude that they have, and so on and so forth. It's just another form of ignorance. Until you've learned about someone's race, someone's culture, or why someone is there... Everybody is that owl on TripAdvisor. Everybody has an opinion. And I think with the rise of social media, with the rise of um, just people being accessible, everybody can make an opinion and they can say, so me being a a quote-unquote celebrity or being famous um, has not stopped the rise of racism. It's heightened it even more, um, Mm. I would say. But it's cool. I I, I would never take on board... um, yeah, yeah, I never take on board the, the people's attitudes. That's their attitude and I don't know what their upbringing has been. I don't know what their family members are like. I know my family members. I know how I was brought up and I was brought up in the sense of do unto others what you want done unto yourself. So if you want someone to treat you bad, treat them bad and then the karma is going to come back to you. But all of the work that I've done, all of the young people I've supported, all of the homeless guys, um, people in uh, mental institutions, it's that karma of me giving back, is, it's just coming back to me. And it's a really beautiful feeling to just hold your arms open and just say, thank you.
0: Mm, mm.
1: Sorry, I bang on sometimes.
0: No, no, it's, it's really interesting because um, you know, it it's resonates so much with me in, in, in terms that I'm in recovery. And um, AA is very much about giving back to help you with your own recovery and to you know come to terms with the damage you've caused um through drinking so i really you know it really resonates what you're saying and i think um and also it's like i mean i just thinking back to your school days that if if ever one did want revenge which you know (laughs) it's only human the best form of revenge is success and so you are You know, you just get on with it and live your life and yeah, you've done bloody well.
1: It's it's taken a long time for me to become quote unquote successful in the sense of how people will view success being on TV and you're doing shows. But I think navigating my way through uh, my childhood, through my teenage years, that is a level of success that kind of goes underrated because there is a lot of trials and tribulations that you go through that you don't necessarily get a chance to to celebrate those. They're not celebrated in the same way of you've got got an A-star plus in your GCSEs, you've got a degree now. Um, But surviving in the world that I survived in, that level of success has prepared me for anything. I mean, like being on the repair shop, being on a successful show, having a production company, meeting people that I never anticipated I would meet in my entire life. My community has shaped me to become um, a social chameleon and someone that has, um,
0: mm.
1: what is it, an, an empathy. What do they say on it? They say,
0: yeah, empathy.
1: Yeah, I've got cool. an empathy to just tune into um, to people. And it, it, that all came from my community. It hasn't come from any qualifications that I've gained um, in anything. It's come from the inner me. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I give props to uh, my success of surviving and getting out of um, the community, and now I want to give back in more ways than one.
0: I think trauma of some kind makes you a more empathetic person. I believe, and I yes. I look at kind of the young generation, my kids, for example, and and other ch- other kids who, you know, are, are kind of protected quite rightly and loved now, especially by the you know the paternal love which was. Almost frowned upon in our parents' generation, certainly, with me. And it's like they go through life in this bubble almost. But trauma will come to them because yeah. it comes to everyone, and they are going to be so ill prepared. So, for example, my mum was severely manic depressive and tried to commit suicide, and yeah. and it taught me. You know, I perversely I am so grateful to her for giving me the strength to take on life's challenges and to be more understanding of other people. And in the same way, with my alcoholism, which my, you know, my children witnessed and I I kind of, you know, I say to them now, I said, yeah, it was a fucking shit time and, uh, you know, I can't turn the clock back, I can only make amends by staying sober. But yeah. it will give you strength. You know, you had to deal with a lot of shit and, you know, hold on to how you got through that and how you came out the other side.
1: Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with you. I think um, trauma in, in all its shapes and sizes it's, um, it's one of those things that, it's like what I said earlier with regards to learning from mistakes. When you make a mistake, when you learn from that, it's it's the best lesson you can ever get. It's called life, life skills or life lessons. Mm. And those life lessons are, I think, preparing you for an opportunity that you never anticipated was coming. Now, I fell down about five or six years ago. Um, my marriage broke down, my business, my charity. There was a number of young people I had employed. I was a pillar in the community that people used to go to and ask for support um, in more ways than one. And, when you hit a certain point in your life that you need to ask for help and you're what in my position, I was someone who was super strong for everybody, but then I couldn't ask the people who I was strong for to help me build me up. It's like, it's impossible. It's almost as if you ask them that and they're looking at you like, hold on, if I have to support you, who's going to support me? And the thing that I did was just, drive, get away from all of that and just disappear. I didn't even think I was going to see tomorrow. But by coming through all of that, it has allowed me to then realise like, wow, one, anything is possible. Two, um, you can reintroduce yourself to yourself. And I know that sounds weird. I
0: totally get it.
1: In In the past six years, I have reintroduced myself to myself and I've kind of caught up to where I needed to be or where I should be but I didn't know I needed to get there so growing up as a a, a young kid in Hackney and then to where I am now I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I was going to be here but it's such a perfect fit it's such the perfect Mm. time it is where you're supposed to be but you wasn't ready for it you're only ready when you've been through your trauma you've been through certain trials and tribulations and all of that will add fabric to what you need to do in this next journey
0: Yeah, and for you asking for help and and having this sort of conscience about not wanting to let people down, but as we know, it takes a huge amount of strength and courage to ask for help.
1: Big time, Um, and I did do that six years ago, Um, Mm -hmm. and the first way of me asking for help was to cry. Um, I broke down. I broke down in front of. uh, a guy who I call my brother now um Gerald Bailey and I just cried and cried and it's the first time I ever cried in front of a man and a black man at that um and him being the type of person that he is he just turned around and said to me I've got a job for you so I'm crying in his car he's got a beautiful car white leather um, interior I hadn't washed for about a week I've been sleeping in my car and um I, I didn't smell very good and he just said to me while I'm crying yeah I've got a job for you and I was like hold on a minute I said it in my mind I didn't say this to him I was like don't you see me crying I'm breaking down I've got nothing I've yeah like hello the, like this this is me at rock bottom the, this is probably one of the weirdest job interviews I've ever had like you you're offering me <laughs> a job and I'm just like what really um, and the, the the progression of what he did with regards to supporting me, Um, even asking him um, for money. I remember the first time I asked him for money. It took me a week to ask him for a hundred pounds because I had to build up the courage. I I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to ask him for it. And this is a very successful businessman. Him giving me a hundred pound is like nothing to him. Me asking for a hundred pound was the shame, the embarrassment the kind of disrespect I was showing myself is what was all on me, just asking for £100, just to buy some food um, and survive for that week um, was a really big deal. Um, And yeah, as I said, it took me a week to ask him. But I asked for help and it was, he said to me something that's really stuck with me and it still sticks with me to this day. He said, you don't have to worry about asking me for money. I'm going to support you until you're ready to fly. Wow. And I was like, wow. Um, he gave me £100, and I sat in the car, and I cried again. Because it was like, for the first time, someone was actually saying, a man um, that who I admire, was saying to me, I'll support you. Simple. And that was like,
0: wow. So, you, so basically, you were effectively homeless for a week, or was it longer... No, it was about a week. I was
1: effectively homeless yeah. for about a week. Um I I lived with him for about two weeks and then he put me to live with his mum and stepdad, um, who I lived with for about a year and a half. Um well, probably about a year. And it it's it's weird what I'm about to say, but hopefully someone will understand this. But by living with them, they 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 gave me life again. They reborned me. They, it was almost as if, imagine you're five, you're, you're growing up, you're, you, you're, you've just been born and you're up to your fifth birthday, you can experience all of that. That's what I was experiencing at 45. I was experiencing being born again and just like reliving. They would cook me food. They would look after me. I would look after them. And it was this, it was the most beautifulest, Second childhood I had at 45. It was like, oh. you what? Powerful, powerful.
0: Where where was your mum at this stage?
1: My mum, real mum was in Barbados. Um, and okay. then my second mum is Gerald's mum. And the only man I've ever called dad is his stepdad. And I asked okay. him if he would do me the honour and allow me to call him dad. Um, and which I did. And he, um, he said, I would be proud for you to call me dad. Absolutely proud. And your
0: mum, when does she go back to Barbados?
1: My mum's been back in Barbados for about 20-something years. I think she, I would say she's been back in Barbados for about 20... 24 years. Um, but I had a 50th birthday last year. And my mum came over for that. And my two mums met each other with oh. my dad. And um, they hugged each other. And we all hugged each other. It was the most beautiful experience um, i ever had um and i had the party yeah yeah it was a beautiful i had the party in wolverhampton really great place yeah
0: fantastic which is where you live isn't it wolverhampton yes wolverhampton so how did you end up in wolverhampton
1: well basically i got in the car when everything fell down and then i just drove and drove and drove and uh, the the light started flashing on the dashboard and that kind of woke me up out of this trance i was in um so I went to the petrol station, I put some petrol in. Um, and then I went to kind of like an industrial park, but it was more like a retail park where it had like McDonald's and other big stores there. And I remember getting this, I had a double cheeseburger. I ate that and I just fell asleep in the car. And that's all I did for a week. I just slept in the car. Um, and I did have a bit of money, but I, the, the state that I was in, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no form of direction. I had no form of, um, okay, today is Monday. You're going to go to there and then you're going to do this, you're going to do that. There was nothing. It was basically like sitting in a car and looking at people go past as if I was not part of that society. I was not part of that kind of existence. I didn't exist for a week as far as I was concerned. I woke up towards the end of the week and I realised I had some money in my pocket still and I was like, okay, there's a hotel over the road there. I'm going to go and stay in that hotel. Um, and that's what I did. And I think once my car was um, came out of the retail part, it was recognised on the police register or something. They, had, My ex-wife had reported me missing. Um, and then they were able to trace me through the, the number plane. Um, and that's when she got in contact with Gerald and Gerald came and, and, and got me um, and offered me a job.
0: That's it for part one. If you enjoyed it, please give us a five star rating and review us on your chosen podcast platform. Thanks to Jay, to our house band duo. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Catch up soon.